Memorial Day, the day when we commemorate and remember those who have given their lives for the freedoms that we enjoy here in America. Lest we forget, lest we forget. I would like for all of you who uh, served in the armed forces and maybe someone here as far back as World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Gulf War, any skirmish anywhere in the world, and those of you who are presently uh, in the uh, armed forces, I would like all of you to please stand, please, throughout the congregation, all who have served and who are serving. I imagine uh, you, like I, can name the names of some people that you knew or served with uh, in the service who gave their lives. Some friends of mine, good friends, and I'm sure of yours as well. We need to remember. We must remember. Remembrance is the wellspring of virtue. Forgetfulness is the fountain of vice. We must always remember those who, having preceded us, gave their lives, their fortunes, pledged their sacred honor even, as our founding fathers declared, so that we might have the freedoms that we enjoy here in America. All of us are shaped by events in our lives events over which we have no direct control. There's an ongoing discussion between nurture, nurture and nature, heredity, environment. They are really inseparable. All of us are shaped by events. All of us. And this morning I want to share a couple of ideas on what Pearl Harbor did for America. What Pearl Harbor did for America. It reshaped America. It reshaped America beyond anything we can imagine. And some of us who are old enough to have been conscious of the world we were living in prior to World War II can begin to understand even better than others possibly just how dramatic the world has changed because of Pearl Harbor. Which is why I think it should be required reading for every student in high school, The Greatest Generation, The Flags of Our Fathers. I just read a book in the last two weeks entitled In Harm's Way, one of the great tragedies of World War II when the Indianapolis was sunk and no one knew exactly where they were or what had happened to them. Over 200 of them eaten, eaten by sharks, these men who gave their lives that we might have the freedoms that we enjoy today. All of us have been shaped by events. How do you explain Moses apart from the desert? 
raised in the opulence of uh, Pharaoh's court, educated, refined, cultured, miraculously preserved by the, prior, the providence of God. And then he kills a man, kills a man because this man was harming one of his own kinsmen. And so he spends 40 years on the backside of nowhere in the desert. And then God uses him to come back and deliver the people, the children of Israel, to guide them then 40 years through the wilderness. You cannot explain Moses apart from the desert. We can't understand David apart from being the youngest in the family, overlooked by his father when Samuel came to anoint one of his sons as king. The least, the last, became the king. Killed Goliath, was anointed king by Samuel, but not recognized as king. He was king without a kingdom. He had a few followers, and he spent seven years hiding from Saul, who was the king then. David hiding, refusing to in any way hurt Saul, and then finally becoming king in Hebron, there for about 10 years, and then moved to Jerusalem for about 30 years, about 40 years. How do you explain David apart from the events in his life? You cannot. Even our Lord, we know his nature. We know he was God's son, only begotten son, virgin born, son of God. We knew his nature. We knew that he was and is one with God, that he that has seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. But how do you, how do you understand Jesus apart from the carpenter's shop? And the daily marketplace of life. And the stories that he told. The resistance he had from the religious leaders of the day. The acceptance he had among the disinherited, the disenfranchised, the discouraged. You cannot, cannot explain Jesus apart from his nature and his nurture, what took place in his life. And the same is true of you. All of us have been nurtured by events. Events that at the time may have been good or bad, but they became part of who we are and what we are. Pearl Harbor did something for America. Let me read you a passage of scripture from 2 Timothy. Paul writing to Timothy in the second chapter of 2 Timothy, first verse and following. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship. Hardship. That's part of our nurturing, isn't it? No one lives through life on a feather pillow. Endure hardships. With us, Paul knew what he was talking about. He had experienced those. Those were not theoretical experiences. They were existential experiences for him. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs 
He wants to please his commanding officer. He wants to please his commanding officer. Who is our commanding officer? Jesus tells us himself, 15th chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning with the ninth verse through the 17th verse. Listen to this and listen for a recurring word. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what his ma- do not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father. Learning. I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. In that short little paragraph, you will read the word command five times. Not a request, not a suggestion, a command. We are men and women under orders. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We're not the master of our fate and the captain of our soul. We're soldiers in the army of our Lord. And the command he has given us is to love each other as he has loved us and love one another. That is not, that is not an elective. That is a command to me, to you, and to all of us who profess him as our Lord and Savior. I learned a lot of things about myself in the Marine Corps. It was an experience that I would not take anything in the world for. I'm really, truly grateful for it. Um, There were a number of things that I learned, and the main thing that I want to say about in this message today, that I believe World War II the bombing of Pearl Harbor and the subsequent war that followed, created in America a community of committed men and women. Beginning in 1941, America became a different nation. We were totally committed to one another. We were of one mind and one spirit. 
We came together as the family of freedom. And commitment was the key word. Faithfulness to God and to country and to one another. Semper fidelis, always faithful to God. To your commander in chief and to one another. I spent some time at Pearl Harbor, I mean at uh, Paris Island. I was at Pearl Harbor later on toward the end of the war. But um, I went to Paris Island boot camp. I didn't realize just how true the sign is that you see when you go to that island and enter Paris Island. The sign reads, where the difference begins. I had no idea how much difference was going to begin in my life. Uh, Sergeant McGowan, Gunny Sergeant McGowan, was uh, my drill instructor. He's, we had three, but he was the number one drill instructor. He was probably one of the most gentle, loving <laughs> individuals I've ever known. I mean, he had a smile on his face all day long. It was just... He just lifted your spirits wherever, wherever you are. Uh, I did not like him one bit. Uh, I did not like him, and I didn't think he liked me. Uh, but I tell you what, he did something in my life that needed to be done at 17 years of age. And if my mother had heard some of the things he said to me, she would have taken me home. Sergeant McGowan, I revere. I didn't at the time, but subsequently, because of what he and what the very process of boot camp did for me, without any doubt, made a difference in my life, a profound difference in my life. It brought to the surface, through the experiences of the Marine Corps, what had been embryonically planted in me by a mother and father who were totally devoted to God, to country, and to one another. My father had been in World War I. Previous to that, members of our family in the Confederate Army and some on the other side of the family in the Union Army, dating all the way back to some of our forefathers in the Revolutionary War. So I grew up with a great sense of patriotism. And I, with patriotic songs, I get goosebumps. And there are times when I feel tears in my eyes because... I just have a great, great, res great respect for people who have made such an incredible contribution to my life. And Sergeant McGowan did that. I didn't like what he was doing, but I came to love what he did, and I came to love him. He was killed on Iwo Jima, and I placed a flower, flowers on his grave at the Punchbowl Cemetery in the Pacific. I can remember how gentle he was one day when I was cold. We were there in terribly cold weather. And I, I said, uh, Sergeant McGowan, sir, I waked up this morning with a little sinus headache <laughs> and uh, some sniffles. And I, I feel like, you know, I know we're going to go be out all day long. And, and I just think it might get worse if I don't just stay in and maybe drink some hot tea and just, re <laughs> just relax and... Um, 
get over this so that I'll feel better tomorrow. And Sergeant McGowan, the wonderful man he was, he said, why, of course, Buckner. There's no problem about that. What kind of tea do you like? <laughs> um, yeah, I know. I, I know. That's terrible. Do you have enough medicine? Is there anything I can do for you? You just take the day off. The rest of us will go out and uh, we'll start early in the morning and, and we'll get back late at night, dog tired. But you'll feel wonderful. You'll feel wonderful. Yes, that's exactly what he said. I cannot tell you in this mixed company <laughs> with children present what he said. He said, Fooey. <laughs> no way. No way. Commitment, commitment, commitment. Nothing is needed in America today more than a commitment to God and country and one another. Nothing more needed than commitment. The people that uh, fought and won World War II, some of you are conscious of this because you're old enough to remember. I was. Uh, in 1940, I was a sophomore, I guess, a sophomore junior in high school in 19, uh, 1940 and 41. I didn't, I, I didn't realize all that was going on. I just was enjoying living in a, in, in a house on Claremont with six other people, my mother, my father, two grandparents, two uncles, and my aunt, my brother, and myself, all seven of us uh, living in this one house with one bathroom. You learn commitment there, friends. <laughs> you learn compassion and forgiveness and understanding. I thought it was a wonderful world. We had community. We had commitment to one another. It was a marvelous spirit of camaraderie. In, in those days, even before the war, because the Depression helped create a sense of commitment to one another. In fact, William Manchester, marvelous writer, historian, says in one of his books, and I believe in an editorial in Life magazine some time ago, he said, we would not have won World War II had it not been for the Depression. And his thesis was the reason we would not, the reason we won World War II was because of the Depression because in the Depression, we learned how to be our brother's keeper. We passed clothes along. We shared with one another. There was a sense of commitment to one another, compassion for one another. And he then went on to say he doubts whether or not the present generation could win World War II. I do not know. Only circumstances could tell. I pray it will not come to that. Let me tell you about what was happening in 1940. In 1940, three out of the four farms in America had no electricity, had kerosene lamps. There was one telephone for every seven persons. How many of you grew up with a party line? How many of you? A number of you. Yeah. One telephone for every seven people. Nowadays, count the telephones in your home and in your office and your cell phone, just in your mind. Just, chances are, probably in this room, we have an average of about five or six, maybe even seven telephones per one person. Had one automobile for every five people. 
in America. One-fourth of the homes in the United States then had no running water, 1940. One-third of the homes had no flush toilets. It was that generation that responded with commitment and courage and compassion to make a difference in the world. And they did it not because they had a lot of things, but because they had the one thing that's essential to make a world better, and that is commitment to one another for better or for worse. Self-denial was part of the world of that day. Today it's been changed to self-aggrandizement. I believe with all of my heart the church is probably the last place in our society to create community. We have more capability for communication today than ever before, but we have less community. We have more communication capabilities, email, voicemail, fax machines, all the stuff that we've got. We can't even keep up with it all, let alone know how to use it all. We have more capability for communication today than ever before, but we don't have community. And the reason we don't have community is because we don't look each other in the eye. And you'll say a thousand times more with your face than, with, than you will say with an email. Now, I'm not degrading all of that. I'm just saying we need to have some discipline about communication. Or if we do not, we are going to continue to lose the sense of community. And I believe the church is the only place left where we can find and help create a sense of community where you're known by your first name and where you're known by your face and you're in a Bible study group and a Sunday school class and a church and a weekday fellowship. We need to have an ever-growing outreach of communication with one another so that the world can find within the fellowship of the church the kind of common union, communion that we have through faith in Christ and with one another. If we don't do it, it won't be done. The last place to produce community is where you're sitting right now and where you're serving right now. To accomplish this, we have to have commitment. I'm afraid commitment has been replaced by consumerism. Charles Gibbon wrote about Athens. These words... When the Athenians wanted not to give to society, but for society to give to them, when the freedom they wished for most was freedom from responsibility, then the Athenians ceased to be free. And so will we. So will we. more concerned with getting than giving. Modern Trinity, me, myself, and I. I want to read you 
a short little reading from what I think is one of the best devotional books ever written, Robert Rain's book called Creative Brooding. He has a little story, a true story, uh, from different places and people, and then some scripture, and then some poetry. Remarkable man. The title of this little section right here is Greater Love Has No Man. True story. In fact, this is a true story from a man named Ernest Gordon, who was chaplain uh, in the service and was with the Valley of the Choir. He wrote a book and called Through the Valley of the, of the Choir. How many of you remember The Bridge Over the River Choir or saw the movie? Marvelous. If you haven't seen it, get it and look at it. It's an incredible story. And this is a true story from there. And this man, whom I had the privilege of meeting years ago, Ernest Gordon, writes this about what happened. The incidents of which we were hearing now impressed us profoundly. One that went the round soon after concerned another Scotsman. He calls him Argyle, which is a city or, or an area in Scotland. Ar- Scotland will use that word. He was in a work detail on the railroad. The day's work had ended. The twos were being counted. When the party was about to be dismissed, the Japanese guard declared that a shovel was missing. He insisted someone had stolen it to sell it to the ties. He strode up and down in front of the man, ranting and denouncing them for their wickedness, their stupidity, and most unforgivable of all, their ingratitude to the emperor. Screaming in broken English, he demanded that the guilty one step forward to take his punishment. No one moved. The guards' rage reached new heights of violence. All die, all die, he shrieked. And to show that he meant what he said, he pulled back the bolt, put the rifle to his shoulder, and looked down the sights, ready to fire at the first man he saw at the end of them. At that moment, the Scotsman stepped forward, stood stiffly stiffly to attention, and said calmly, I did it. The guard unleashed all his whipped up hatred. He kicked the hapless prisoner and beat him with his fist. Still the Scotsman stood rigidly at attention. The blood was streaming down his face, but he made no sound. His silence goaded the guard to an excess of rage. He seized his rifle by the barrel and lifted it high over his head. With a final howl, he brought the butt down on the skull of the Scotsman who sank limply to the ground and did not move. Although it was perfectly evident that he was dead, the guard continued to beat him and stopped only when exhausted. The men of the work detail picked up their comrade's body, shouldered their tools, and marched back to camp. When the tools were counted again at the guardhouse, no shovel was missing. Greater love hath no man than this, than that he lay down his life. For his friends. William Manchester, whom I alluded to a few moments ago, 
has a marvelous book that I would in, encourage you to read entitled Goodbye Darkness. Uh, he was a Marine Sergeant on Okinawa. He was wounded, had the proverbial million dollar wound, was in the hospital out of combat. And against orders, against all orders, he sneaked out of the hospital, went back and rejoined his troops and was wounded a second time, nearly killed, spent about two, month, two years nearly uh, in a hospital. And they didn't know whether to court-martial him or decorate him because he'd gone AWL. He wasn't supposed to leave the hospital. But they asked him, why did you do that? I mean, you had a wound, you were out of combat, you were safe, and yet you went back. Why did you do it? He said, well, I didn't do it for the country. I didn't do it for the flag. I didn't do it for the Marine Corps. He said, I did it for my friends. Jesus said, you are my friends. Give your life. Serve others. Greater love hath no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. But a very important P.S. I want to add. There is a greater love, a greater love that is the source of all love that we have for one another. There is a greater love than the love we have for our friends, even laying down our lives for our friends. There is a greater love, a source of love there that is the fountain, the source of all love, of sacrifice, commitment, and service, and compassion. Greater love hath no God than this, than that he lay down his life for his enemies. That's love. That's the source of all love. Greater love hath no God, little g. Go to all the pantheons of the world and you'll not find a God like this God. Greater love hath no God than Jesus Christ who laid down his life for his enemies. They spit on him. They ridiculed him. They nailed him to a cross. They crowned him with thorns. They stuck a spear in his side. And he said, I forgive you. Now that's the source of love that's to spill over in our lives. And once it begins to permeate our lives and our hearts and our relationships, we then begin to have a different relationship with one another and with the world around us. One closing thought. I'm all for anything that helps people be better, life to be better. I'm, better I'm, I'm for any kind of good education and medical care. I'm for anything good, for character training and all of that. I think that's good. I'm not minimizing that. I'm authorizing that. I'm supporting that. But I want to move to another level. And as a Christian, I believe I need to move to another level. And you do and we all do together. 
And this is what I'm thinking. I do not believe that we can think our way into right living. Our minds are so contradictory. We rationalize, we justify so easily. Now I know some good thinking may alter some behavior here and some there and may improve this or may improve that part of our life. But I do not think that in the ultimate sense we can think our way into right living. I believe that once we know Jesus Christ who laid down his life for his enemies, who laid down his life for us, who came to forgive us, when he gets into our hearts and in our lives, he begins to permeate our spirits and the permeation of our spirits begins to manifest itself in our brains and in our thinking. And I believe that when we have right living, the ultimate product will be right thinking. It begins with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We will not think our way into right living, but in the Christ life, we will think our way into right living. And the source will be the love of God in us. Laying down our lives, giving our lives, using our lives for the service of others in the name of him who gave himself that you and I might have life here and hereafter. And right thinking will follow. Attitudes will change. Behavior will be altered. The world will be better. And will be saved. Remember Pearl Harbor? Right. It changed America. Remember the cross? Change the world. If you've never trusted him, I urge you to trust him. You will not think your way into the kind of living you want, but you can live your way into some right thinking that will transcend anything you can do on your own. Put your faith and trust in him. Give your heart and life to him. Come be a part of this fellowship to help us create community here in this city to make a difference in our lives and the lives of others. Re-enlist again today. Re-enlist again today. You're a soldier of Jesus Christ, Paul says. Re-enlist. Sign over. Yeah. Get another hash mark. Re-enlist. Rededicate your life. Say, I want to be a better follower of Jesus Christ. I want to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I want to be Semper Fidelis, always faithful to him and to each other. Johnny and others will be here to greet you as you come to make whatever decision the Spirit of Christ is motivating you to make. I urge you to come for your sake, for the world's sake, but most of all, for his sake. Come. Dear Lord, use this moment. May it be a moment of solemnity for all of us as we look into our hearts and lives and do a double check on our attitude toward you and toward others. 
May no one move except those moving to make decisions publicly. May in this holy moment our hearts be renewed, our commitment refreshed, and our lives realigned with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.